Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Jared Cameron Katz. How about that? Jared is a senior vice president and partner at MDL Group. He is a highly decorated commercial real estate broker, being one of only eight licensees in Las Vegas with both the SIOR and CCIM designations. Beyond work, Jared, you're a foodie. You have a background in catering. You're the best friend to many different people. You love your kids, Emma and Mason. And one of your favorite things to do is to post up at a bar of a nice restaurant and have dinner with your wife, Amy. How'd I do? All true. Thanks for being here. So let's just kick off and you can talk about who you are and what you do. Who I am and what I do. Yes. Well, start about the professional side first. I'm an industrial and office broker in Las Vegas. I'm a partner in MDL Group, happen to be your business partner. That's right. Uh, we've been working together now for almost 12 years, 11 years been friends for much longer than that and uh we've had quite a journey in addition to that i'm a happily married man my wife amy i have a beautiful daughter named emma that's turning six next week and a little boy named mason that's going to be four in october they keep me very busy when i'm not in the office talk more about so your father your husband and you're a devoted son and brother it's true. Uh, I'm actually very lucky to have a ton of siblings. My parents were divorced when I was five years old. My father remarried, which gave me two stepsisters, Doran, who lives in Phoenix. She's an attorney. And Lior, who lives in Los Angeles, and she's a very successful clothing buyer. And on my mom's side, I was lucky enough to get a sister named Jessica, who lives in Bend, Oregon, and a brother named Zach, who lives in Tucson, Arizona. And then I have a full brother named Josh, who I'm very close with. He lives in Phoenix, Arizona. And all of us have children, some steps, some full. Uh, we treat them all the same. It's a pretty amazing dynamic between the siblings. So let's jump into how you and I met. I think that's a nice segue. You mentioned your brother, Josh. Uh, you and I were in a Jewish high school youth group called BBYO, Neighborhood Youth Organization. As I was... Preparing for this show, a couple things I'll mention. I'll, I'll talk about this other one later. You know, when I was writing your intro, I started writing my intro with your intro, our, how we met, how we started working together, and then I stopped and focused on you, which is one of my takeaways about you, but, but we'll get into that. Was it 96? 95. 90, 95. Convention 95, December of 1995. So talk about first, what is convention? And then we'll talk about that year. So a little bit about BBYO. I, I think that BBYO helped me come into my own. I was sort of a lost puppy at that age, uh, 15, 14, 14 years old. And my brother forced me to go to this youth group that had changed his life quite literally. And I can say the same for myself. I didn't know what direction I was going to go. I didn't really know who I was. I kind of long haired, hippie, grungy kid. 
Was that who I was? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I mean, Birkenstocks, you, Jerry yeah. Garcia, tie-dyed shirt. All that, all that. You know, you go through phases growing up, and that, and that was one of them. I can honestly say I'm still a humongous Grateful Dead fan, and, and that will never go away. I, you know, shower more often now and don't <laughs> wear tie-dyed shirts and things like that. But that was a big part of my history. And not even on the weekend? It. You know, what we do on the weekend, we do on the <laughs> weekend. So then I, I went to this youth group, and it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, it was a youth-led organization. I was welcomed immediately, uh, more so by my brother's friends than my brother at one point, because he was a little upset that his friends became my friends. And then we grew into it together and ended up being close friends and brothers. There's nothing I wouldn't do for this organization. It it truly made me the man I am today. I'm the leader I am today because of that organization. Say more about youth-led and what that actually means. So there's a a couple different disciplines in in a youth group organization there's other ones that are led by maybe by a rabbi or a priest or a pastor or, you know, volunteers and the adults do everything and the kids just sort of show up and hang out. This organization is very different. There were adults, there are staff, but they don't do much except for guide the youth and the youth leads everything. There's a board, president all the way down to secretary, treasurer. We did fundraisers to raise our own money. We planned our own programs. And Aside from moral support, we got very little support from the adult leadership. They by, would sign the by con- design. By design, you know, they would sign the contracts at the hotels or the camps that we went to. But the youth literally planned every moment of these conventions. So these conventions were, were everything from basketball tournaments to dances to contests of the chapters doing song and dance and making up funny words to songs to compete with the other chapters, uh, leadership stuff. Jewish education, and it was unbelievable. It really uh, changed who I was as a person. And you and I met at one of the conventions. They had conventions twice a year. Oh yeah, in the I, fall and the spring. I remember that lunch like it was yesterday. You're a young man with a rat tail and a ponytail, and we instantly became friends. And you were telling a funny story about how you got caught with a girl in a car, and uh, oh yeah, in a park somewhere by the police. That's right. I don't think you were doing anything wrong, but. They called your mom. It was because we were out past curfew. Yeah. They called my mom. They took me home. They took her home. And I was like, this is going to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Jared. Um, let's shift back to your career, your commercial real estate broker. I asked you a long time ago, what makes you so successful in that position in this industry? How would you answer that today? It's probably threefold. Work ethic is the main one. Honesty and integrity go together. Uh, Knowledge of the market. So now it's going to be more than threefold. (laughs) Uh, But the biggest thing is do what you say you're going to do and and work hard. You know, I I was lucky enough to watch my father growing up and my mom who went through nursing school when I was at a young age. She was a single mom going through nursing school. Then my dad, who to this day works 60, 80, 100 hours a week in his mid-60s, uh, we'll be retiring soon, but I, I watched him and I watched his leadership skills with his staff and I watched how he took care of his staff and he, there was nothing that he asked them to do that he wouldn't do himself. And I've sort of emulated that behavior in my career. And when I tell my clients that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And when I tell my clients I'm not going to do something, I'm not going to do it. Is that equally as important? It is. I think one of the biggest aha moments in my career was the power of the positive no. You know, being able to tell a client, that's not for me, 
I appreciate the opportunity, but let me find somebody that, that that is for. And it's not always financial. It's, you know, maybe that project is out of my realm of expertise and I would have to stop what I'm doing and, and shift my whole day in order to learn that uh, may or may not be feasible. And I've learned along the way that you are good at what you are good at. Uh, you, it's okay to be really good at a couple things, but don't try to be okay at everything. That's pretty powerful. Let's uh, go back up. This show is about you know my takeaways from the people who have influenced me. Interestingly, as I was trying to sit down and get clear on the takeaways I've learned from you over the years, it was incredibly difficult. I think because we spend so much time together, there's a blur between, you know, did Jared influence this or or not, which is interesting observation. But I want to ask you what one thing or event has been the single most influential in your life that shaped you the most? How do you even begin to answer that? What one thing in my life has shaped me the most? Maybe it's perspective. I uh, I lost some friends at a very young age. I lost my best friend to cancer when I was in the fifth grade. And uh, unfortunately, I had to learn about loss at an age where you shouldn't have to deal with those sort of things. And I think it morphed my thinking that the little things aren't so important. And a lot of the big things aren't so important either. And you're with someone one day and you're not the next day. And my, my high school career was very much the same. We, we lost three or four friends between my junior and senior year. And my principal in my high school made a comment that he's never seen a class lose that many people. And it was car crashes, a couple of suicides, three suicides. Wow. And I don't care who you are. That changes who you are. And you can take it one direction or you can take it the other. I chose to take it in the direction of, of understanding. And, you know, of course, I, was, I read the books, you know, why bad things happen to good people. And, you know, when I lost my friend in the fifth grade, it was to cancer, uh, which has spurred a lot of volunteerism for cancer in my adult life. Fuck cancer. <laughs> there, there's no other way of putting it. And yeah. it's, it's a horrible disease. And children's cancer to me is, is the worst possible thing. And um, I think that, that changed me. What was your friend's name? JJ. Actually, his name was James, and my son's middle name is James, named after him. So I'm taking this in. Interesting. We have a lot of, not a lot. We have loss right now going on in our organization. Um, we lost an agent also to cancer, also very quickly. So the gravity of what you're saying right now is resonating quite a bit. Go back to high school and when you lost your three or four friends of your high school group. You know, how did that, how did your experiences in fifth grade play into that in high school? Were you better prepared or was it that it hit you much harder because now it's compounded loss? Better prepared. I mean, th there's, there's no easy way to take that kind of loss. Um, I have my, my oldest friend's name is Spencer Leibowitz. We've been friends since we were 18 months old, and we suffered all of this loss together. JJ was equally as close to him. Uh, him and I lost two friends. Well, the one that died in the car crash was actually his stepsister. Wow. Um, she was my dear friend, and he went to a different high school, and just so happened his dad married her mom, and it was a coincidence. Um, 
she actually brought us, we had grown apart for a couple of years and she actually had brought us back together. And then he transferred to my high school. No, another one of our friends who was the quarterback of our football team. I grew up playing Pop Warner football with him. He was struggling with some issues and, and just decided that it was, it was time for him to go. Uh, his name was George. And uh, I drove this girl, Allie, to his funeral. And two weeks later, she decided to take her own life. So when I went to her funeral, I almost didn't want to drive anyone, but you know, not everybody in our high school had cars and there were people that needed to go. So I decided to drive people there, but I was, it affected me in a big way. And then another one of our, our high school mates, I wasn't that close with him, but Spencer was, decided to take his life too in the same year. And uh, so there was a lot of counseling, a lot of group therapy at our high school. They made available the counselors for us. They let us come out of class and, and sit with each other and, and grieve. Um, and it was tough. Uh, freshman year of high school, another guy from that same group decided to take his own life. And uh, he was in my close group of friends. And that, that, was, that was heavy because I was here and in Las Vegas and that was in Phoenix and I lived in the dorms and it, you know didn't have much money I it did make it back but I missed the funeral by a couple hours and um, I think it shapes you it, you know it makes you appreciate people it makes you more sensitive people you never know what someone's going through you, know, you could think someone's a total jerk but maybe they're not maybe something horrible happened to them that morning that they're not ready to share and they may never share you just don't know what someone's going through so I try to approach my response to people when I'm talking to them with, you know, I don't really know what's going on. I, I might think they're a dick while I'm talking to them, mm -hmm. but I try not to react. I try to, you know, maybe something's going on with them that I don't know. And, and let's get to the bottom of it. Let's really get to know this person before I place judgment. There's so much in what you just said that I want to unpack. I don't know where to even start with it. Um, I do want to go back to, you said you read some books, why bad things happen to horrible people. Yeah. I did read or why, I read why horrible things happen to good people. Why bad things happen to good people. Okay. Something like that. And, and I did read don't sweat the small stuff. Um, quite a few books like that over the years. I don't ask me to quote them cause it's been I won't. 15, 20 years since I read. I them. can't even get the title right. <laughs> <laughs> but how does that show up in your day to day? You mentioned a little bit with, you know, being non-judgmental, accepting people for not just who they are, but what they have going on, even if you don't know what what's going on. Yeah, I think there's two books books that I read in my adult life that I would say influence me more today than those books do. Uh, the first one is uh, the Dale Carnegie program we went through together, much like everything else in our life. And there's a book that's called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, which I, I think totally morphed my life more so on a personal level than... In a, on a business level and there was a time in my career in our career where it was very hard to get a deal done in the in the economic downturn and I would take that stress home it wasn't necessarily fair to my wife I didn't have kids at the time but she would point it out you know it's not my fault that things are hard at work and it, when I took this class I had this aha moment the Dale Carnegie the Dale class. Carnegie class and that this book how to stop worrying and start living there's some religious stuff in it that I don't relate to, but that's fine. You, you push that aside and you listen to the other stuff and it's things are going to happen and it's up to you whether you worry about it or not. I, I had a good friend uh, growing up in, in college named Chris Hornsby and he always used to tell me that worrying and, and regret are the, the dumbest emotions in the world 
because you regret something that you did. You already did it. You can't do anything about it. It's done. What are you going to do to make it better moving forward? Mm-hmm. And worrying about something and how something is going to turn out that you can't control. What a waste of energy. You can't control it, right? So it's, it's all about mindset and, and getting out of your own head. And one of the aha moments from that book was if you're in a situation where you're worried about the outcome, figure out what the absolute worst possible scenario can be in that situation and accept it and move on. And it can't get any worse than that. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't happen like it happens in your head. The worst case scenario doesn't really come to fruition. Never, hardly ever. Hardly ever. And even if it does, you've already... But you beat yourself up and you have all of this anxiety and you're worried what's going to happen and it's, it's, it, it's paralyzing. And at the end of the day, it, you know, it takes a lot of work on yourself, but at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So why... It's, it's exhausting to worry about these things that you can't control. So I, I've heard this plenty. Anybody who's listening has heard this plenty about, you know, not wasting your energy on worrying and all this and that. But how do you, how do you do the work? What, what is a, a tool or a tactic to actually apply this in your day-to-day life? I could tell you this much. You feel a whole lot better when the work is done, right? So if you're procrastinating the work because you're afraid of what the outcome will be, it just compounds it. And sometimes I'll sit there at at nine in the morning and I'll have a list of 20 things to do. And it's paralyzing thinking I'm never going to get all of this done. And then three hours later I've grinded through it and I still have three hours left in the day to handle other things. And and I feel great, but it it was in my head that I'm never going to get that done. So a lot of it is getting out of my head Mm -hmm. and just doing the work. And I think a big benefit of what I do is that my work affects other people in a positive or a negative way. Meaning if, if somebody has got a tight time frame on their real estate need, then I'm dilly dallying. I can financially hurt them, which would, which would affect me emotionally more than if I lost the deal financially. Uh, and that's just who I am. And so it motivates me to know that I'm helping somebody, right? That this person, this is, they own a company where they have a responsibility to their boss to find this real estate space and I'm the one that's going to help them become successful. And that's, uh, that's what motivates me. That's what drives me. So let's shift gears here. Uh, you were mentioned on a previous episode of Takeaways by Angelica Marie Lopez. You and Amy were both mentioned. So Angelica came on and shared her story about domestic abuse and the relationship that she was in and how she got out of that relationship and the journey and the battle that that she's been through and continuing to go through. Interestingly, she mentioned something. um, Be kind to people. You don't know what kind of battle they're facing, which you just talked about also. I wanted to point that out. But I have a specific takeaway to ask of you about Angelica. And just to kind of rewind a bit for anyone who didn't hear that episode, Angelica was in, in in an abusive relationship for... Was it a year and a half before she she got away or three years before she got away? I think all all together they were together three years. I didn't know her the first time. The monster moved away, did it to another girl in Canada, came back. Angelica thought she could save him. I want to say they were only together for six or nine months. Might have been longer that time around. Okay. And... uh, 
because she she spent a lot of time with Amy and I for three or four months before he came back. We started running together in the morning. She was Amy's friend. I didn't know her that well. We started to get to know each other. You know, you learn a lot about somebody on a morning run or morning walk. I knew she worked at Collier's. I knew she was a very sweet girl. I knew she was driven. Uh, that's about it. She worked for my dad for a, a catering event. And I just always thought she was super nice. And then she disappeared for six, nine months when they got back together. Mm. And I looked at it. I didn't know as much as Amy about her history with him. So my f- my thought was, well, she's just back with her boyfriend and that's her priority. And that, that happens mm-hmm. all the time. Right. And Amy would always say to me, I'm worried about her. You know, she she only texts me back at certain times of the day. Um, she was really scared when he was coming back. And I was like, why was she scared? And then it all started unfolding. And we didn't, we, you know, Amy would talk to her, but it didn't unfold until she finally called Amy and said, he's in jail. And I don't know what to do. And this time around, Angelica was sharing, Amy was nine, mo- nine months pregnant. Yeah. When, when she finally came clean to us, or uh, when we finally realized what was actually going on, yeah, she was eight, nine months pregnant. And you told her, or Amy told her, this is what Angelica shared on the, on the podcast. Amy told her, you cannot meet my daughter until you go and get a restraining order. Yeah, and I listened to the podcast, and, and, and you had asked me what conversations between Amy and I happened around that. And I can honestly say that was all Amy. I, we didn't have any conversations about it. And I can honestly tell you. Well, let's hold on. Let's let's kind okay. of just for anyone who didn't necessarily listen, let's sort of give the timeline and the events of what was going on. So you know, Amy's nine months pregnant, about to have a baby. Don't you don't know. Don't even know the gender because you guys decided not to uh, reconnecting with Angelica because she literally just ran out of her house to get away from this guy and he happened to chase her not chase her he went after her angelica was already gone he attacked two other women got arrested because of that and so now he's in jail but somewhere in between there i think maybe he is in jail already amy said to angelica you're not going to be able to meet my my baby ultimately it was it was a baby girl emma until you get a restraining order and protect yourself in so facto protecting you and your family and and the new baby. Mm-hmm. So there was that. Sorry, Angelica, you can't come around until you get a restraining order. I mean, this guy, you said it. He was a monster. He just went into prison. He is a trained mixed martial arts professional fighter. He's a bad dude that has already demonstrated he's done bad things, unthinkable, unspeakable things. But you went from that to, you know, he's getting out of jail now. He got out on bail. On bail. I think it was two months later. So you have a two-month-old newborn baby girl at your house now. You went from there, like you can't even meet her or come around until you get a restraining order to, okay, he's out on bail. You clearly can't stay in your home because he knows where that is. Why don't you come live with us? Yes. So here's what I'm curious about. What conversations happened between you and your wife, Amy, as a family unit to go from don't come around us until you get a restraining order to, oh, no, you're moving in and you're going to live here so that you're safe. The funny thing is that 
there really there wasn't any discussion. It was th- this is what has to happen to protect our friend, uh, who coincidentally was more of an acquaintance to me, but it was the right thing to do. Uh, I can tell you that the conversation that Amy had with Angelica, where she said, right, we were talking about it last night, trying to remember the timeline. When she said that to Angelica, it was not meant to protect us and Emma. She said that to Angelica to protect Angelica. To give her a purpose. To give her a purpose. This guy didn't know us. We were new friends of hers. <clears throat> she, she met, uh, Amy was working at Collier's at the time. When he was living in Canada, or he was in jail in Canada, when she started running with us, he didn't know who we were. So we were a safe house for her, essentially. And we happened to only live two miles from where, one mile from where she lived. So. Yeah, but he would like show up randomly, follow her around. He's a monster. And when, when he was in jail, the court system was kind of giving her a runaround to get a restraining order. And, and I'm not sure how hard she was pushing it. She was not in a good state of mind at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's when I said, you need to call Ray Lucero, who you also had on mm-hmm. the podcast. He's the president of Safe Nest. He will give you the tools and resources that you need. And Safe Nest immediately jumped on it and got her that restraining order, which was essential when he got out. Because if she didn't have that restraining order, he might not have gone back in. The only reason that he w- went back into jail and was held in jail for over two years until the trial was because he broke the restraining order and because Angelica was diligent enough to share the Instagram post that he was so close to her with the DA. Um, so that, that was essential. But when he got out, this poor girl was paralyzed with fear. She didn't want to go to her parents' house. She, she came from a loving family. To not put them at risk. Because she didn't want to put them at risk. He knew where her parents lived. There were certain friends that would have taken her in, but he knew where they lived too. And we were the friends that he had no clue. He still doesn't have a clue who we were. I mean, he saw us in court, but he didn't, didn't know who we were. And to me, it, there wasn't even a question. I didn't give her an option and I didn't discuss it with Amy. We didn't discuss it. She said, guys, he's getting out. And I said, cool, you're moving in. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, you, you can come stay with us as long as you want. We'll make sure you're safe and you're going to get through this. She couldn't live by herself in this house that he lived in with her. where He clearly knew all the ins and outs that that was not even, up for discussion. I didn't give her an opportunity to say no. I took her back to her place to get her clothes. She couldn't go back alone because he was out. And she came and, and lived with us. And I'll never forget that first night. She talked about the dream feed in the podcast where we'd mm-hmm. feed our daughter in her sleep at 10 p.m. That was my responsibility. And she was still awake at 10 p.m. And I asked her if she wanted to do it. And when I was handing Emma to her, she was almost recoiling and I think it was because I was a male and she didn't mm. know me very well. And she was just, she was in a fragile state. And, and I got to tell you, this is one of the strongest women that I've ever met in my life. You, you put her up against a, a New York Wall Street personality as their broker. She has no problem flexing her muscles back at them. Coincidentally, they respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, so this is one of the, I, I respect her so much. She's so strong at this time in her life. She, you know, she was lost and, and scared. 
And when I put Emma in her arms, she had no choice but to take care of that baby. And uh, she says to this day that, that Emma saved her, gave her purpose. And, and she's, became a, she's become a part of our family. She's, she, she jokes that I'm like her dad or her brother, uh, big brother. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't a discussion with me and Amy. There was a, this is what you're, you do for somebody that was in a situation that she couldn't get out of on her own. And she, she did a couple stints with us. She lived with us that time for six or seven months. And when he went back into jail, she decided that it's time for her to start her life again. And she went and got an apartment. She was smart enough to get an apartment with a doorman and a gated garage and all of these different things to protect herself. And about a year later, the trial kept getting extended, mm-hmm. which is a tactic of a defense attorney to mm-hmm. try to get people to forget facts. And 22 times she talked about that. Yeah, it, it was it debil- 22 times. It was debilitating. And she went, in, went into a, a bad depression and asked us if she could move back in because it was a, a warm, safe environment for her. I believe we already had Mason at this time. And so she helped us with him, too. And she moved into our guest room, and I think she stayed for a whole year this time. And it didn't bother us. Uh, she actually paid rent that time because uh, she wanted to. She wanted to feel like she was contributing, mm-hmm. and she watched our kids for us, and she was a part of the family. And, and we were there to support her through an awful time. So as you were talking about how you kind of jumped in front of everything, didn't give her a choice, and said, you're moving in with us, you took her back to the apartment where this guy could have shown up, and he's a trained fighter, and you're not. It reminds me of a story. So there was a point in our in our college days where extracurricular activities were our priority, and, man, we were good at it. We were <laughs> living the Vegas nightlife life. Uh, we were at Babies. I think it was called Babies at the time. It was at the Hard Rock Hotel. Not very many people named Haim out there. I'm one of them. There was another one who ran in, um, I don't know, different kind of circles, trouble kind of circles. So we're sitting in a booth. Everyone's having a good time. Somebody says my name, this big Samoan guy. Jay. Right next to me, Jay. Fat Jay. (laughs) I don't know how you remember this stuff. Fat Jay. He hears my name and says, hi, I'm. You screwed my friend. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know you. I don't know your friend. That's what's going through my mind in like split seconds. I couldn't say anything. I didn't have an opportunity to say anything because immediately you jumped up in between me and this big guy. He was bigger than you and me combined. And you got right in his face and said, hey, there's a misunderstanding here. We'll get it figured out and diffuse the entire situation. Put yourself at risk. To protect me. You put yourself at risk to protect Angelica. That's what you do. So what does that say about you? Where did that come from? I think my dad's the same way. My brother's the same way. I don't know. That's just who I am, I guess, to the core. You got to stick up for the little guy. Not that, <laughs> you, not that you couldn't defend yourself, but... Hey, he was a big dude. Uh, I yeah. physically probably couldn't have defended I'm a, myself. I'm a couple 50, 60 pounds heavier than you. He was 100 pounds more than me probably. Yeah. Uh, I, I knew I could run faster than him. 
<laughs> uh, matter of fact, I remember I ran down to the bar. The bartender that we knew came up and had him kicked out, um, thankfully, because it probably wouldn't have ended well for me. I, I don't know. You just you know, in situations like that, when when somebody you care about is is could be harmed, you you don't hide behind a corner. You deal with it head on. There's a difference, though. I mean, it's it's not like you're threatened and it's fight or flight. You you have a way of fighting for other people, even if they're not willing or able to fight for themselves. I feel like if I can, then I should. And it's not a, an internal battle. It's that person. You know, I always tell my daughter, when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, there is nothing harder than being the new kid in the class. So if I can ask you anything as your father, it's to reach out to that new kid. Anytime a new kid comes into your class, make them feel welcome. Because I got to tell you, that kid is doing the hardest thing that they've ever done. You know, when I switched elementary schools. I was lucky enough to not ever have to do this again. But I switched elementary schools in second grade. And a lot of the kids I went to kindergarten with were at the new school. I happened to stay at the old school in first grade, so they were all together first grade. In second grade, I switched schools. And even though I knew some of the kids, it was really hard, and I still remember it to this day. And so I always tell my daughter, you know, go make friends with that person right away because they're going through something really hard, and you've already you've established yourself. You have friends. You know where the bathroom is. You know where the lunchroom is. You don't have to stay friends with that person if, if you don't mesh, but be that light for them, and they'll always remember that. And, you know, and I've, I've emulated that in my behavior my whole life, and I think that that's helped me get where I am with my relationships. It's tough to be the new guy. It's interesting. As I was saying it, it became apparent why you're so good at what you do in that you are an advocate for your clients. I forgot how you said it, but it was like, you have to, you have to care. Well, you do care, but beyond the caring, you have to be able to advocate for someone who isn't in a position to advocate for themselves. If it's somebody who just, you know, went through domestic abuse, somebody who's getting threatened because they have the wrong name, or if it's a client that, uh, when you were talking about, you know, they have a deadline and there's potentially financial recourse. If you're not hitting it on their behalf, you're the one that steps up and makes sure that not just you're doing what you need to do, they are doing what they need to do. Yes. And they don't know what they don't know. Right? So they may not know that they have this deadline coming. Like, for an example, I've got a property in escrow, and we have to get our comments back on the title report today. And I called my client yesterday and said, you need to read my comments because tomorrow's our deadline. He didn't even know. And this is a sophisticated investor, but he hadn't mm-hmm. fully read the timeline. So that's where it comes to having a competent, trusting broker that's going to look out for you. Instead of someone saying, I sent it to you. It's your fault. You didn't get it back to me in time. Right. You're staying on and make sure, making sure that they're aware of of not just timelines, but ramifications. Yeah, ownership. So kind of related to that nightlife story. You know, there's a psychological term called interconnected memory systems. Uh, simply put, it's shared memory. So it's this phenomenon, best easy, best described in a marriage with two spouses where 
the husband will look to the wife and say, hey, what was that guy's name or the wife with the husband? Where were we at that one time? Uh, it's actually a thing where people, they don't remember things because they have someone else to rely on. So you, know, you and I have been accused of uh, sh having a shared brain in the past. Uh, we've been accused of being closer than uh, we are close, as close with our, with our spouses. Um, I know for me, I definitely rely on you to fill in gaps in my memory from certain periods in my life. And you just, you just did it, which is interesting. I, I'm telling a story about a place, and there's things going around, and you say, Fat Jay. I mean, you knew the guy's name. You always remember the people that were there. You know, where we were, what we were doing, but always the people. Not always the names. I got lucky that time. I work really hard to remember names, and that's tough. It's tough for anybody. But faces and situations, I remember. I'll remember a conversation. I remember where I met the person. I typically don't remember their name, but I'll remember the conversation, where they're from, what they look like. Let me ask you this, though. Is it just me that I rely on you for certain memories, or is it other friends? Um, I'm sure there's others. You more than, you know, we spend eight hours a day together, five, six days a week. So yeah, for 20 years we've done that. So you, yes. Uh, Amy does too, but I also rely on her. Um, there's a lot of people I don't remember too that, you know, our good friend Brad Gold will remember people. Spencer, who I grew up with, he remembers people from preschool and I don't remember him. Or high school, middle school, we went through everything together. He's like, you know him. We, we, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't know him. But if I saw their face and they haven't changed, their face hasn't changed since, you know, preschool, I'll probably remember. So interestingly, I talked to Brad before this to kind of bounce some ideas off of him and, and get clear about what I was wanting to talk with you about. He told me that he does rely on you for memory also, just like I do. But he brought up something interesting. He helped me really get to an ingredient about you. And he, he kind of posed it like this. You can always tell what kind, of, what kind of a person somebody is by their friends, right? I think we can agree on that. Absolutely. Um, but you, in particular, you have several different groups of friends, and you have a way of bringing those groups of friends together, and then they become friends with each other. I can say I'm very lucky, and I always have been very lucky with friendship. Before we get into that, though, I will say that the memory thing, it's pretty funny that you guys all rely on me for memory. You ask my wife, she says, I can't remember anything, nothing. So she la she'll, she's going to laugh when she listens to this. She's going to be like, who's that guy? He doesn't remember anything. So that is interesting. So you rely on her yeah. so that we can all rely Maybe on I, you. Thanks, yeah. Amy. Maybe Appreciate I don't it. have to focus as much at home because she's got the better memory. I don't know. All right, now go back to the, friend the friendship thing. thing. You, you know, I. to me, there's nothing more special than friendship. And I, I've never in my life gone into a friendship for short-term gains, right? And Say more about that. What, is, what do you mean? 
friendship doesn't always have to be a two-way street. I mean, you can do more for a friend than they do for you and still have a great friendship. Um, but if you go into a friendship thinking I need something from this person, it's not really a friendship, right? It's I'm trying to get something from this person. And that typically doesn't last. And, you know, the friendships that I've had like that, I can honestly say are mostly people that are trying to get something from me and I lose interest um, because it's it's not somebody that I trust and feel like I can rely on, which is the core of a friendship, right? So um, I've always been a big family person. Um, never really had problems with my family until I was an adult. And I've always considered friends family. You know, coincidentally, I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish. Uh, I've always told my rabbis that to me, I, I don't really necessarily pray to God. I pray to my friends that I've lost over the years because like, I feel like they're watching out for me. And, and that was at an early age that I came up with that. When I lost my friend in the fifth grade, he was who I prayed to. Because I felt like he was always there watching me. And uh, he was a very, for a fourth grader, the kid had morals like you wouldn't believe. His family was very religious. And he even got me to stop cussing when I was in fourth <laughs> grade, which is insane because, you know, I, I kind of like to cuss. And... So I always kind of based my morals on what would what would JJ think about what I'm doing right now, and it's you know over it's been thirty years, twenty nine years. I still think about him. Um, digressing now, but so I've always I've always considered myself a person that can uh, relate to anyone in any walk of life. So, uh, and I think that's helped in my career. Is it relate or is it? Engage? Inter interact with them without judgment. Now I'll give some specifics. So when you know Brad said this, it, it gave uh, it kind of brought to life how you do this. So we were you and I were at the beauty bar a month ago downtown at the beauty bar for this Wednesday night event called Emergency Room. Emergency Room is something that Chris Hornsby invented. I don't know how many years ago now. 15 years ago, back in the scene, in the nightlife scene, he you know, promoted a, an evening at a bar. And so there's Chris Hornsby, there's Dan Beal. Uh, these are folks that you met when you were bartending. Before bartending, yeah. Before bartending. And I consider them friends because I met them through you. And, you know, Dan Beal in particular, he is a different person than who I would interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. But you got to love him. I do love him. Uh, I don't know that I'm the kind of person just, you know, being vulnerable about me. I wouldn't have created a friendship with Dan Beal, but you did. And you saw him in a way where there's no judgment. There's no, um, you just accept him for who he is. And I, I do love him because I have that opportunity through you to see this person as who he is. And, and not judge the exterior, not just physically how he looks, but also his antics. And their antics because he's... He's loud, obnoxious. He's loud, obnoxious, but, but it's... Yeah. Okay, so he's loud, obnoxious. Um, I wouldn't gravitate towards that. But then I know now why he's loud and obnoxious. Or so I see it differently through your eyes. And I'm like, I love that about him. Yeah, and, and there's the people like that are the ones that become your advocates, right? 
if I had an issue at two in the morning and I called him, he would stop what he was doing and come wherever I am without even asking me why or what or when or how or what did I do to get myself in that situation. He just know that I needed him. And how lucky am I, right, to have mm-hmm. a friend like that? Mm-hmm. So, And how lucky are we to have a friend like you to bring us other friends like him? Fair enough. So to go back to relating or accepting or, you know, the, the ability to have a conversation with all walks of life. And I think that that's really benefited me in my career. Um, I, I don't believe that a commercial real estate broker in a position like mine can can do deals with their clients effectively without getting connected on a personal level. Right. So they have to trust you and you have to trust them that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. So I, I've always prided myself on the fact that I could sit at a local bar with a plumber or an electrician or an auto mechanic and have a conversation. At the end of the day, we all put our pants on the same way. We all go to the bathroom, right? We all have to eat and drink water. You know, we might do it differently, but we all have to do it, right? So if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, you're putting your pants on it the same way as, as me and this plumber, right? So I don't think anyone's better than anyone. People might have better communication skills. People might have more education. People might work harder. But at the end of the day, at the core, we all care about our families. Uh, we all have children. We all have gone through the nightmare of having a newborn, you know, us that have children. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I could sit at the Four Seasons and, and hang out with the CEO and talk about football and our kids and life and whatever. And I can sit at a local bar with a plumber and talk about our kids and football and life. And I think that's really benefited me in my because I'm an industrial broker. So I, I have to relate to the blue collar worker, which is, you know, most of the people leasing space from us. I think it's more than that, though. I don't think you do it because you, you're benefiting professionally. I think you're benefiting professionally because you do it and that's who you are. I'm benefiting personally from every person I meet. I learn something from every person I meet. So how do you define friendship? You, you actually gave me an opportunity to think about this one. And I could probably go on for days. I mean, I consider... You know, most people are lucky if they have one or two close friends that they can truly trust. I can count on my hands and toes. True, real friends. And when I say true, real friends, these are friends that you could go three, five years without seeing or speaking to them and you pick up like nothing happened. These are people that you can tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can tell them that you did something so heinous and they might they'll look at you and say you shouldn't have done that. That's really messed up, but it's not going to change their love for you. Right. And I was always, when I was growing up, I was really big on my family. I always had great friends and I think family is everything. I still do, but I can tell you that I've got some friends, you included that are just as good, if not more, more important than family in many cases that five, 10, 15 of my friends I talk to way more than I talk to my family and they're the people you can rely on they're the people that look at you with no judgment 
that they may not be able to help you, but they're going to listen to you. And they're not going to judge you. And they're going to be there for you. And even if you hurt them, or even if they hurt, you know, I've got friends that have hurt me, but I know that they're still my friend and they're still going to be there for me. And they, maybe they're going through something that, that's out of my control, right? So um, you know, all I can say is I'm very lucky. And I, I just, I can count on one hand how many friends I've lost in my entire life. And I can honestly say that it had something to do with them, not me. And there's friends I've grown apart. You mean, you mean lost in, like, you ended the friendship, like, not yeah, like lost don't, as don't, in what don't, we talked about earlier. Don't call me anymore. You're a bad person. Okay. Like, um, and that's sad, you know, that's loss. But I, I haven't experienced that very much in my life. There's people that I decide that, you know, maybe you're not a good person and I'm just going to fade away, right? But I haven't had a lot of that in my life. I've retained. You know, Why? I don't know. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe because I treat people the way I want to be treated. That's so cliche. It is, but it's true. It's You tell me. I I have an answer, actually. Okay. It's what you said earlier, that... You know, you deal from a place where you said friendship doesn't have to be a two-way street. Meaning, you can do more for somebody else than what they're doing for you. And you think about how you uh, you just, you know, you don't have notes in front of you. You didn't write anything down. You're just talking as you would normally. This is who you are. People, I don't think, typically think like this. And where I thought you were going with that, you know, it doesn't have to be a two-way street. You know, you can get more from somebody else than they can get from you. You you give more to people you're that's the place you deal from uh, than you expect to get from them so they give you more they give you something back you're, you're just going to give them even more yeah so yeah. when you have that kind of approach to people and friendships you're not going to lose very many people so i've i had a really privileged upbringing my my parents didn't weren't always financially stable uh, I want to know what you mean by privileged. Loved. Say more about love. Lo- my I, my parents. I never went without a thing. Right. And there, looking back, there were times when there were lean times for my parents when they first got divorced and my my dad was starting his business. I never noticed any of it. There was always love for me. There was always love for my brother. I don't remember ever being told. You can't join Little League because we can't afford it. I don't ever remember being told you can't go to that BBYO convention because we can't afford it. And I'm sure there were times that it was hard for them to pay for it. I was never told you can't go to summer camp, which I know is expensive. Um, They just did what they had to do to take care of us, right? And it wasn't just financial. It was love and support, right? They supported everything we wanted to do. And... I realize that not every child has that opportunity, right? So we always tell every new director of BBYO that I don't ever want to hear that a child couldn't go to a convention, which to me was the most life-changing three days of my life every time I went because their parents are having a hard time. It's high school kids. These are high school kids. Um, very emotional about uh, children that are suffering from cancer or an illness and their parents can't afford it. So, we, as a company, and personally, have supported a lot of that. Um, is it bringing toys to the hospital? Is it whatever? So in friendship, too. So uh, is it because of my work, work ethic? Is it because of my upbringing? 
that I have found the success that I've found? Is it because of my relationship skills? Probably all of the above. But I realize that I have a lot of dear friends who I who mean the world to me that uh, maybe didn't have the opportunities I had. And it's not financial, it's support, right? So if a kid didn't wasn't told by his parents that it's okay to question the doctor when they go to the doctor, they're just going to believe everything the doctor says, right? And, and the doctor might be wrong, believe it or not, right? So when you grow up with parents that... Is this a real example that you helped a friend with? No, this is actually uh, an example from something I read, that the, the difference in, in the way people are brought mm, up, right? Okay. So uh, if, if, if you're not educated and you weren't taught that it's okay to protect yourself and ask questions, you might just go through life thinking that what you know is what you know. And it goes back to you don't know what you don't know, yeah. right? So, or uh, go through life thinking it's okay to be treated in a certain yeah. way when it's not okay to be yeah. treated. That uh, way. Which comes back to the why we treat our employees the way we treat our employees and why we treat our friends the, why, the way we treat our friends. It's because there's right and wrong. And to me, there's no gray area in right and wrong in the way you treat people. Um, losing my train of thought here. But no, we're right on it. We're talking about this, I think, stemmed from when I asked you how you define friendship about yeah. seven hours ago. you you, you take care of the people that take care of you right and and sometimes they can't take care of you but but there's something you can do for them right so if i have a friend that's that's miserable in their career and and i can help them i can make an introduction for them goes back to our great friend ray lucero what can Mm -hmm. i do to help you that's right um i emulate a lot of his behavior too if i can help someone why wouldn't i right I don't have to get something in return. I can tell you what I do get in return is I feel really great about doing it. And I can, if I can give somebody an opportunity that they may not have had if they hadn't talked to me, how, how lucky am I to be able to give that opportunity? Mm-hmm. And I've seen this with you. It's, as, it's anything ranging from a couple hundred bucks for a high school kid who you never met to go to this convention to just asking someone, hey, how's it going with that thing you're going through to... You know, one thing about you, if anyone has loss, I mean, you are the first one to jump up and say, I'm bringing dinner to your house. You don't even ask, hey, what can I bring? That, that, that. You just said, uh, tell me which day we're bringing dinner to your to your house. It's little things like that that I've observed with you over the years. They're not little, I should say, but all those different things. You said earlier that you give advice to your daughter, Emma, about being nice to the new kid, helping out the new kid. I want some advice from you, if that's okay. I'm not sure I can give you more advice than you already this know. This is one you didn't prepare for, so that's good. You know, what can I be doing right now to cause my son, who's seven years old today, to call me his hero when, I, when he's 37? <laughs> you can do nothing different than you're doing right now. I, I watch you with your son. I watch you with the fake sword battles and the Legos and all of those things. He he sees more than you think he sees. Um, he watches how you talk to the other parents. He watches how you are with my children. He sees how you treat his mother. Uh, I watch how you treat his mother. You are the first person to get up and do the dishes uh, so that she doesn't have to. You are so hands-on with your kids. Um, 
from the moment you get home to the moment you get to be- go to they go to bed and then probably all throughout the night as they get up too. Uh, keep doing that. Uh, whatever it is that he wants to do, does he want to play baseball or does he want to uh, do debate or does he want to do art or whatever he wants to do? Uh, I can say that honestly that my parents supported everything that I wanted to do, whether it was what they wanted me to do or not, as long as it's positive, obviously. And be there. You take him to his tutoring, you take him to all of these things, he's going to remember that. And the one thing that we always talk about is that there's some things that are more important than business. And if he has a presentation at school, he's going to remember seeing you in the crowd. He's also going to remember when you're not in the crowd. And there's no deal that's more important than you being in that crowd. And he won't understand the deal. He'll just know that you put him first and just keep doing it. It's good advice. I came in as usual with some takeaways. I'm coming out with even more takeaways. So just to recap some new things I've learned, the power of the positive no. Strive to be great at a couple things, but it's not okay. Or don't be okay. Don't be just okay. Don't be just okay at many things. I like that. You know, worry and regret are a total waste of energy. Uh, I already talked about the one where friendship doesn't have to be a two-way street. You can always do more for others than they're doing for you. It's pretty good, huh? So what was the one thing that attracted you to me being a friend on that first weekend we met? Because I feel like it was instant. I, I don't. Yeah, it was instant. It was fluid. And just like when I talked about it, it's, it's so hard for me to sit here and say, all right, what are the specific takeaways I've learned from Jared? You know, one memory that is so vivid for me, I don't know if it even relates to this question, but, you know, I got a new car when I was 18 years old. Badass Camaro. It oh, was a yeah. big deal because um, up until that point, I was driving a car that was like $800 that I was embarrassed about. Looking back, I'm grateful I even had a car, but I got this cool car. And like the one of the first things I did was shared that moment with you. And I didn't live in Vegas at the time. No. So like what would cause me thinking back, you know, at this point, we're friends now for three, four years. You know, what would cause me to want to share that excitement with you? That's a memory that I I, I have very clear about Uh, when, you know, that first convention I think I have memories of memories. I don't have the direct memory, if that makes sense. Like there are pictures that we've seen over the years that people post on Facebook or I've got in my garage. Like I remember you with the hair and the tie dye and the Birkenstocks because that's probably a picture that I've seen over the last, you know, 15 years or whatever. The ladies love that hair, by the way. Uh, They do. They did then. (laughs) They probably do now. Uh, I think it's important for the listeners to know, you know, how special this podcast is because of how dynamic and long our friendship has been. So we meet convention, 1995 Jewish youth group event. I'm 14, you're 15. So we go through high school together. We're involved in the regional board together. I'm always in Las Vegas for events. You're always in Phoenix for events. We always stay at each other's houses uh, your parents were a little bit more liberal than mine, so I always wanted to come here. So we had the big basement to play in, and all you know, got to do what we wanted to do. I move here for college. Uh, you're the first person I see when I get here. 
we probably spent every day together for the next four years until you moved away to travel. You were gone for two years? One year. One year. Felt like an eternity. You came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone it started, you were the guy on the couch. Because uh, you were lucky enough to have your parents here. You didn't have to pay rent. So you basically lived at my house for free. Yeah. No, I didn't we, live there. Here's the... I spent a lot of time there. We'd all go out, get crazy, come back at some crazy hour in the morning. Everyone would be going to sleep. I took a nap and I would have to get up and go clean a job site for my dad. Yeah. Or go to work at the knot shop. That's right. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward, we're out of college. You uh, went the construction route, the development route, and decided that you were going to be a residential realtor at Keller Williams. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? You don't want to be a residential realtor. That's a Let nightmare. Let me clarify. I didn't decide to be a residential realtor. That wasn't my identity. You had a I business was, card with Keller Williams on it. I did that. I can't <laughs> deny that. I was pivoting away from the construction and the development into what is it that I really want to be doing. And that was the first step uh, really away from something, but not a step into what I wanted to do. Understood. But I was a realtor. I paid the membership. (laughs) I carried the R. We joined forces in 2007. Yeah. And uh, we've learned a lot about the business world since then. I We were young green pups back then. At the worst possible time. I like to say it when I think back on it. It wasn't the worst time because it was the recession. That would have been a better time to get into the business. We got in when it was either right at the peak or peaking. So there was a still sense of hope, a false sense of hope that we could actually do something and make bunch of money and be successful but no 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 we wrote it from that very top point straight down to the bottom and i think it made us better we are the brokers we are today because we went through that and we learned how to make money in a down market and we learned how to take care of clients that were also hurting financially and And difficult and find them the right space and worked on deals that we probably would pass on today but that gave us the experience to make us the brokers we are today. That gave us the experience to make us the leaders we are today and lead our other agents that may have not gone through that. I remember there was probably a two year, maybe longer period of time when I never expected to come into the office and have a voicemail from somebody who wanted to do business with me. Nobody was calling. You had to, you had to call (laughs) and more. You had to get out of your office, walk to the buildings that you wanted to solicit, walk into the door and make those connections. You had to kick, literally kick down the door. You know, there were a few brokers that were actually pretty good. They got in the market in 2003 and four and rode that high. And much like today, whereas I I can't get through my workload today, there's very little prospecting and they never learned how to prospect. Right. They came in, their phone rang, they did deals. These guys made four, five, six hundred thousand dollars. Market crashed. They didn't know how to go get business. You know, Brad Schneff with Marnell said you could walk across the street at that time and get hit by a deal. Yeah. That's how easy it was. Much like today. And a lot of those brokers are, are out of the business. So how lucky are we that that we get to see the light from that darkness and that we, we made it. You think it had anything to do with that you and I were sitting in the same office together between 2007 and and beyond? I think it has a lot to do with it. It goes back to the friendship, right? So, were you ever at that time in your 
deepest thoughts in your heart of hearts thinking this is not a career for me i got it i got to do something else no because i had i was still bartending at the time so i wasn't making as much money as i wanted to make but i wasn't starving right so you weren't bartending so you were no i started working there. for your dad at some point right to get some extra money so thank you mitch I will say this, that, you know, people ask us how we've sustained this best friend, family, business partner dynamic for so long. And one thing that I've observed, and I had this conversation with my father, my father runs a company that he's the sole owner. He's the neck to choke. He's the guy that pays the bills. He's the guy that makes the profits if there is any. And my observation is that it's pretty lonely at the top and you can talk more on that based on your Vistage group and the CEOs that you deal with. How lucky are we that we've got, we, we got to go through this together, right? So it wasn't me suffering and you successful and uh, me being envious of you and whatever. We were there to, to support each other. We were both suffering. And if I made money bartending and I had to buy you lunch the next day, that's how it went. Right. And Equal how, opportunity suffering. How lucky are we today that we get to share this success? Mm -hmm. Sure, if I owned my own company or I was a broker on my own at Collier's or CB, I might make a little bit more money. Probably not. But if I did, it would be pretty lonely. I know right? how much money you make, Jared. I would be, you know, I get to high five you when I close a deal, and and, I'm, and I, and and when our company is successful, it it's we're sharing that right. And then when we make mistakes, which we have and do, uh, we're sharing in that mistake. So uh -huh. it's a lot less painful when a bad thing happens because you're there to support each other. And it's that much more fun when a good thing happens because you're celebrating together. I'm not in the corner office celebrating my win and nobody really wants to high five me because no one else is winning, mm -hmm. right? So what we've created and built based on this sustainable friendship and trust is incredible. And how lucky are we that we get to share this with 40 other people, right? And how lucky are we that Carol and Kurt saw that? And they, they think much like us. So riff, riff on this. So you and I, you just you know, went deep into our dynamic and our, our friendship that became a partnership and, and all of that. As you were, one thing, as you were talking, you know, we have clients and we have colleagues that, you know, they've been burned by partners and they will never partner again. And that to me is, that would be a tragedy. It's sad. I would not want to do this without partners. So you and I have this partnership and then we find Kurt and Carol that have had a partnership and have a partnership and we bring those two partnerships together into, uh, I don't even want to say it's them and us. It's just the four of us all together. There's no like, uh, you know, founder, you know, new guy dynamic. Never it's, for a moment did I feel that way. So how, you know, you and I have something special clearly because we've been able to sustain this friendship and partnership. How special is it what they've built? Unbelievable. Even more so. They didn't have the foundation in a high school youth group. Yeah. And you and I are a lot alike. You know, there's things we do differently and we push on each other, which is healthy. They're not that alike. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. You know, they're both uh -huh. brilliant in their own ways. They're both dynamic in their own ways. I think the one place that they are 
100% alike, now they're aligned in many, many ways, so don't get me wrong, is how to treat people. And they're exa- you go back to my explanation mm-hmm. of friendship, and mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be a two-way street. They are both cut like that. And they are both very much, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And if I made an agreement with you, whether it's in writing or not, that's the agreement. That's the agreement. And you don't meet people like that every day. And I go to bed every night thinking our lucky stars, mm-hmm. not just mine, mine mm-hmm. and yours, that we got, we found these people. They found us. We found them. However, how unbelievable was it that those stars aligned and that we're all still on the same page and mm-hmm. we all agree on how to treat our employees and our agents and what's right and what's wrong and there's no in between. Uh, Kurt Kurt has said, you know, I decided a long time ago there's this line that I'm never going to cross. And over my career, I could have made many, 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 many more millions of dollars if I would have crossed that line. And I would never cross that line. And that's why he's still successful today. And that's why so many people look up to him. And Carol's the exact same way. I mean, she didn't say to me about the line, but there's an obvious line Mm -hmm. with Carol that she will not cross for any amount of money. Mm -hmm. We've seen that. We've seen it. And I think you and I are the same way. And, and it's not only because of my reputation and it's not only because I'm scared I'm going to get caught. It's because deep in my soul, I know clearly what is right and what is wrong and what is important and what's not important. And it is important to me that the people around me don't feel stepped on, that they feel happy and that they feel like they're, they can go home with feeling a sense of purpose and that they know that they work for a company you know, the employees are much like the friendship theory is that mm-hmm. they work for a company that cares about them. And that if they're going through something hard, they can come to all four of us individually or collectively, and we will be there for them. And it's so special to me that all four of us feel the same way. Because how horrible would it be mm-hmm. if one of our employees was going through something medically or personally or emotionally and one of our partners was like, not my problem. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't think I would. Yeah, stick we've seen that out in the community. Oh, and we yeah. kind of just like, oh, man, I don't think I'd stick around. I, you know, it there's right and wrong. Right. Which side of that line are you going to be on? There's right and wrong. And you have James from the fifth grade to thank for that. And I'm going to I'm going to end with this. Uh, you prayed, prayed and pray to James and what would he do? JJ. No, J- he went by JJ. JJ. I like the full name, but all right, we'll go with JJ. James Delbert Brown. There you go. You know, when I uh, would sit down to pray, I did pray to God. I do pray to God. And I always start with, you know, thank you for the friends that you've given me over the years. I think if I have any one blessing that has attributed to who I am and where I am and how I'm here, it's because I had a strong core group of friends. And I can count, you know, more more than one hand. I don't have both hands and both feet like you do. But more than one hand, solid friends. And in this group of friends, you have got to be a solid friend. Otherwise, there's no space for you. And in this group of friend, friends and now the groups that have come together, you set the standard of friendship. 
So thank you for that. And thank you for being on with me today. It's been an honor. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. As usual, we'd love to hear from you about what your takeaways were from this episode. Make sure to leave us a comment, leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.